The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Now when they heard this, that's Peter's sermon. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, there it is, and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's see, you guys say something special here. God, we thank you for your word, the story of your grace. There we go. Uh, All right, well, good morning, everybody. Um, I want to say welcome to all saints, but I I guess I'm the visitor here, so thank you for your welcome (laughs) to to all saints. Actually, I was thinking about on my drive up, uh, what a strange experience it is to be um, a first-time visitor at a church and also the preacher. You know, uh, kind of a weird experience. I, my, I grew up, we were in a military family. We moved constantly. And uh, so we were first-time visitors at many churches. I mean, just, you know, many times, more than I care to know or remember or, uh, or can count, right? And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that you're worried about when you're a first-time visitor, right? I mean, you're worried, like, did I dress the part? You know, did I, I don't want to stand out too much. Did I, uh, did I get that right? Did I get the time right? Because last thing you want to do when you're a first-time visitor is, come in late, you know, and it's like a law of the universe. If you're late, you're a first-time visitor. The only seats left open, of course, are the (laughs) seats in the front row. In our case, my family's case, uh, when I was growing up, uh, four rowdy kids, you know, know, everybody watching us uh, file in. A lot of things to worry about when you're a first-time visitor, but at least, you know, 99.99% of the time, you don't have to worry about whether the people will like your sermon. (laughs) So, yeah, this is a bit of a unique experience, but it's one that you know, I'm okay with, and I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, thanks to Chad, and thanks to all of you for uh, welcoming me here and for having me. Um, you guys are in a series on the book of Acts, and I think that's cool, uh, and here's why, okay? You know, so many people today, think about it, so many people today are talking about what is wrong with the church, right? People inside the church, people outside the church, and we can be even more specific than that. So many people are talking about what's wrong with the American evangelical church, right? I mean, everywhere you turn, right? Somebody's talking about that, Right? You hear it all the time? Okay, here's a question for us. How would you know whether what they're saying is right or wrong? You know, I mean, when they say something's wrong or somebody says something's wrong, right, they're assuming a standard of right and wrong, you know, by which they've made their evaluation, okay? But here's an all-important question for us, okay? What is that standard? What is the standard? Where would you go to find that standard? You would go to the Bible, I hope. I would, you would, but more specifically, I mean, there's probably no better place 
to go in the Bible than to go to the book of Acts, right? And there's probably not a better place in the book of Acts than the end of chapter 2, which we're going to look at right here, right, these verses, to talk about a standard about what a biblical church should be like and look like. Okay, so let's just take a look at what we learn here, all right? And by the way, texts like this, I mean, this is a, uh, it's an amazing text to be given to preach, but there's way too much here to cover. Uh, this is, I mean, this is, um, this is a text I'll never be able to get it all in. I, I would hope you'd never be satisfied with a 25-minute sermon on this text and think, oh, yeah, I know everything there is to know. This is great. This is a great text for your personal study. There's so much here. Number one, I think, the first thing that we see is that this church in Acts chapter 2 is a church of people marked by a gospel-produced self-quake. Now, I know that's a weird phrase, so let me show you what I mean by that, okay? When we think back to Peter's sermon uh, from last week, one of the things that stands out to us is just how direct and forceful he was. I mean, just takes his audience to task over their rejection of Jesus and even over their role in his crucifixion. So, for example, Acts 2.23, right? This is Peter speaking. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, right? And killed by the hands of lawless men. There it is. In Acts 2.36, right at the end of the sermon, Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Very forceful. So direct, right? And then in verse 40 in our passage, we get this summary statement of what Peter's whole sermon was about that day, right? And he says, or it says, And with many other words, he, that's Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What a description, right? And the obvious implication there, in case you missed it, is that he's looking at this crowd of people and he's saying, you guys are the crooked generation. You belong to that generation. That's you. And so one of the things that we see here right away, and it's something that's easy for us to overlook, and as modern people, we tend to shy away from this, Okay, but Peter's not shy about it at all. One of the things we see is that the first movement of gospel preaching, and it's the first movement of gospel preaching because it's the first movement of the gospel, before the gospel is good news to you, before it's a breath of fresh air, and boy it is, the first movement of the gospel is bad news. It's hard-hitting news. It's, hu- it's humbling news, right? The good news of the gospel, that Jesus saves, yes, he does, And that forgiveness is available. Peter's going to say that in verse 38. Forgiveness is available to all, to anyone. But that message that forgiveness is available comes on the back of hard news, right? Stumbling or humbling news, right? Which is that you need forgiveness. The gospel says your best attempts to get to God on your own, your best attempts to live a moral life, right? To keep God's commands have actually, you've fallen so short of actually getting to God, that your only hope is that it's all a gift. It's all grace. And you know what? This is actually, it's actually even all the more clear. It's all the more compelling. It's even all the more shocking when you remember who it is that Peter is preaching to in this chapter. Chapter 2, verse 5, describes these people in the crowd, and it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. These people, it says, are devout I mean, these are the religious, these are the religious uh, high achievers, we could say. These are moral winners. We could put it that way. And yet, look at this. Peter doesn't congratulate them on their moral achievements. You know, he didn't say, like, hey, fellas, you know, nice job. 
you made it to Jerusalem for the feast. I know it took a lot of effort, a lot of time, you know, a lot of money, right? And you'll be remembered in heaven for that. No, right? He doesn't say that. What does he say? Pretty much the opposite, right? He says, repent. Verse 38, repent, which means you need to turn your whole life around, right? And there must have been people there that day that were thinking, what? Us? Repent? I mean, Peter, do you remember, do you know who you're talking to, right? We're not the, we're not the prostitutes, right? We're not the drug dealers. Peter, we're the good guys. And Peter says, repent. You know, um, George Whitfield, he's a great 18th century open-air preacher, a uh, hero of mine, uh, said something I'll never forget uh, that I think is a great key to understanding what's going on here, okay? Here's what he said. He said, Ev- everybody repents for their sins. Doesn't matter, religious, irreligious, Christian, Jewish, other religions, in general, right? Obviously, there are sociopathic people that don't feel bad about the things that they do, but most people, that's rare. Most people do feel bad about the bad things they do, right? Most people feel sorry for doing the bad things they do. But he says, Whitfield says, Christians are different. Christians are people who've, had, people who've had a real experience of the gospel, right? They start to do something else. They start to not just feel sorry for the bad things that they've done. They start to feel sorry for the bad reasons that they did, the good things they did. In other words, they start to repent of the sinful motivations that are underneath all the good things, even their best things that they've done. Now, at first glance, you look at that and you say, hmm, okay, you know what? I think I know what he's talking about there. Right? Whitfield's saying he's talking about, he's talking about the grandchild, right, that, uh, you know, pretends to love the grandparents, right? He's out there every fall. He's raking the leaves in the yard, right? When it snows, he's shoveling, uh, right, the driveway, right? But he actually, deep down, he doesn't really give a rip about the grandparents, right? He just wants to be in the will, right? He's not doing it for them. He's doing it for himself, right? He's doing it for the money, right? Is that what he's talking about? Is that what Whitfield is talking about? Not exactly, actually, but it's close, okay? His point is not that we do this at a horizontal level, person to person, but that we do it at a vertical level. This is how we relate to God. He's saying that more often than not, the good things that you do when you think you're serving God, you're actually just trying to get God off your back. You're actually just trying to get control over God, right? Put him in your debt, right? I've been such a good person. God owes me. You ever think about it that way? I mean, he's saying you are actually avoiding Jesus as Savior and Lord by trying to be good, by trying to be your own Savior and Lord. In one of uh, Flannery O'Connor's novels, uh, I haven't read a lot of Flannery O'Connor. Um, I actually didn't read this. I, I heard this a preacher, heard this. I'd never forgotten it. She's describing uh, one of her characters, okay, in her novel, and she says this about the guy. She says he had a deep, wordless conviction that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And that's it right there, right? But Whitfield says, a Christian is someone who repents not just of the wrong things that they do, but of the wrong reasons that they do the good things they do. Namely, as a way of avoiding Jesus as Savior and Lord and trying to be your own Savior and Lord. That's why, guys, that's why Peter is not satisfied. With this, with this crowd's religious and moral accomplishments, right? 
but rather he takes them to task, right? He drives right at the heart and he says, I want to know, what is the nature of your relationship to Jesus? Is he the Savior and Lord of your life? And so everything that you're doing, all this religious stuff, right, is actually, it's a response to his grace. Or are you the Savior and Lord of your life? You're the shot caller. And all your goodness is actually just a way of trying to manipulate God to get him to serve you, to bless you, to give you the life that you think you deserve. The gospel shows you, and Peter's preaching in this passage show you that not only do your best attempts to get to God fall short, but actually your best attempts at living a moral life have actually been a way of rejecting God by rejecting his son as savior. Listen, there are many people in our churches today that have never seen this in themselves. And I can say that without any fear of contradiction, no shadow of a doubt, and here's why, because I was one of them. I was a church kid. I was a good kid, a moral person, better than most, and you better believe that's how I thought about myself. But then through gospel preaching, hard-hitting preaching, from a very kind, but a very truthful, very direct preacher, I started to see this in myself. I started to see that whereas I had thought for so long that I was serving Jesus, actually what I was trying to do was through my morality, I was trying to get him to serve me. And when I saw that for what it really was, it was actually a way of rejecting him. I was cut to the heart. Cut to the heart, just like these people in this text. Just like so many of you were when you saw that in yourself for the first time. Just like one or a few of you, I hope, are seeing maybe in yourself for the first time this morning. The gospel message that you don't just need forgiveness and grace for your sins, but you need forgiveness and grace for your sinful, self-righteous goodness. That message produces in you a self-quake. That's what I'm calling it. You never look at yourself the same way again. You never look at your goodness the same way again. I'll tell you, you stop taking yourself so seriously. Right? You start to say things like this crowd in verse 37, brothers, what shall we do? right? What must I do to be saved? I used to think that I knew, right? I used to, I, I thought I knew how to relate to God, and now I see I didn't have a clue. Tell me what to do. The gospel produces a radical spiritual humility, which is what I'm calling the self-quake, and it's one of the key marks that you've really experienced the gospel. You've had a self-quake, and now you look to the Bible and you look to Jesus, you look to his appointed messengers, the apostles, and you say, tell me what to do. I'm desperate. The most dangerous spiritual condition in the world is not being a sinner. It's being a sinner that doesn't know he's a sinner or won't admit it. But for every sinner who knows it, who's seen it, and who wants this, forgiveness abounds. I mean, that's what Peter says, verse 38. And spiritual transformation abounds through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying also in verse 38. That's the gospel-produced self-quake. And that's the first mark, actually, of an authentic biblical church, right? It's filled with people who have all had this experience at some point in their life and who actually continue to have many quakes like this, right? 
I mean, every Sunday, right, you come into church and you go, oh my goodness, God forgive me of my self-righteous pride. And the Spirit goes after and continues to root out that self-righteousness that remains in all of us. That's number one. Number two, we said that the self-quake is what is described in the first part of this passage, Um, but then we got to move on, okay? In the second part of this passage, um, it shows us what it looks like when a whole group of people who have had the same experience come together in community. Okay, think about it. If you've had this re- radical reorientation to yourself and your own goodness, right, your own spiritual, spirituality, right, it would have to lead to a radical reorientation of your life's priorities, right? There would have to be this radical change in your life if there had been this radical change in your heart, right? It's inevitable. Okay, and that's exactly what we see here, right? This is a gospel-shaped life quake, I'm calling it. The gospel shakes up these people's lives. Their lives are upended, right? Their new lives in Christ, their new lives post-gospel, self-quake, look very different than they did before. They look very different even from their neighbors, right, who haven't experienced the gospel's power yet. Three things here I want to point out. And again, I just got to fly through them. It's too bad, but I recommend uh, further study here. Number one, they had a new approach to truth in their culture. Number two, they had a new approach to their money. Number three, they had a new approach to church. Okay, and to the degree that we've been shaped by the gospel, that our lives have really been upended by its power, and these things will be true of us as well. And when they are true of us, it is beautiful. It's a beautiful community. All right, number one, they had a new approach to truth in their culture. We love to talk about diversity today, don't we? I mean, you think in the West, in our culture, in America, that's like our number one value, right? Everywhere you, everywhere you turn, everybody's talking about it, right? is everywhere. Diversity is everything today, okay? Now, here's the question. Does the gospel promote diversity? Yes. Does, did the early church, right, was there diversity in this early church community? Oh, my goodness, yes. There was diversity like the ancient world had never seen before, right? Slaves and masters, women and men, children and adults, old and young, Jew and Gentile, sitting together, eating together, at table, at Jesus' table, holding all things in common, verse 44 says, worshiping together, sharing their lives with one another, unbelievable diversity, breathtaking, beautiful diversity. Diversity actually like we hardly ever see today, maybe except in the church, even though as a culture we're constantly talking about it, right? Ironic, but true. And yet, and yet, it was not unmitigated, unqualified diversity in this early church. Look at verse 42. It says they devoted themselves. And literally that says they were continually devoting themselves, constantly, repeatedly, to the apostles' teaching. Which is shorthand for saying that they devoted themselves to the authoritative, divinely inspired interpretation of the events of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, that the apostles preached. Which means, in other words, that the early church was not free to make up their own views about Jesus. Or we might put that another way. The early church did not say, all are welcome, and you can live however you want, and you can believe whatever you want. That's not what they said. That's not the kind of diversity that they practiced. Rather, the early church demonstrated what we might call symphonic diversity. Now, I don't remember where that came from um, or who said that. I just, you know, it's not my term, but it stuck with me at some point. Symphonic diversity, of course, makes you think of a symphony, right? Think about a symphony. Incredible diversity, isn't there? I mean, so many different instruments, 
so many different sounds, so many musical parts, and yet, one conductor, one piece of music. Can you imagine if every musician in the orchestra was told, hey, play whatever you want, play whatever moves your spirit. I mean, it'd be chaos, right? Not a good sound. But also, can you imagine if there was one person trying to play all those instruments all at the same time? Impossible, right? You'd never make that sound. A symphony orchestra is completely unique because it is many different people and parts and instruments, but united on a single authoritative piece of music to which they are all held accountable. Unity and diversity, and that's the church. Two things I think that means for us today. A biblical church today will be both incredibly attractive and, unfortunately, incredibly off-putting at the same time to our predominant American culture. We'll be incredibly attractive today because there's diversity in the church today. There really is. I mean, sometimes racial, especially in places where uh, there's a real um, different, you know, demographic, racially diverse demographic makeup. But even where there's not, um, there's socioeconomic diversity. There's age diversity. There's interest diversity that you won't find anywhere else. I, mean, I have friends at my church that I would never hang out with outside of church. I won't tell those people who they are. I wouldn't hang out with them if it wasn't our, for our shared love of the gospel, shared love of Jesus, right? And I bet you can think of people like that here at this church. Don't tell them who they are. And that dynamic in our churches is very attractive to those outside. It was very attractive in the first century, too. You look at verse 47, right? They had favor with their neighbors. That was part of it. But we also know that in this Acts narrative, right, that we're gonna, you guys are going to keep preaching on, that persecution is coming. It wasn't all sunny, right? And as you know, today our commitment to the Bible, our commitment to Jesus as the only way to salvation, our dogmatic commitment to the gospel, we refuse to move off the gospel, will be unpopular. It will, it will be off-putting to some people, and that's okay. It's actually a great sign that we're a biblically faithful church if people are both incredibly attracted to us and challenged by us. Now, one without the other, right? All attraction, no challenge, probably not good. All challenge, no attraction, probably not good. But if you have both, probably good. That's number one. They had a new approach to truth in their culture. Number two, they had a new approach to their money. Verse 45 says, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The biblical church, this is showing us, the church shaped by the gospel is a church marked by radical generosity. It always has been and it is today. And here's why, okay? In the world, money is the way you get status. Money is the way you get an identity, right? It's how you know you're somebody. But the gospel shows you that something as superficial as how much money you have could never, ever give you a real identity. Don't take it from me. I have no money. Take it from John D. Rockefeller, right? One of the richest people in the history of the world, right? He said, one more million dollars, then I'll be happy. Sad, but true, right? Take it from him. If it didn't do it for him, it'll never do it for you. Because you'll never have as much as him. In the gospel, you get a real identity. You get a solid identity. In the world, money shows that you're wise, right? Or at least we think it does, right? In the world, money shows that you're righteous, that you're hardworking, or at least we think it does, right? But in the gospel, we see 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says that Christ has become our wisdom. He has become our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, so that 
as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're a Christian, money is not your boast. Jesus is. And the application from that, give. And give generously. Number three, they had a new approach to church. This is the last thing. When you read this, when you read this passage, you get the impression that these people just could not get enough of church and church fellowship. Day by day, verse 46 says, day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. One of the ways that you know that you've truly experienced the gospel is that you can't get enough of the gospel. We mentioned that earlier, right? There's, maybe we didn't mention that, but there's a spiritual hunger and people, right, who've experienced the gospel. The gospel self-quake leads to a gospel life-quake, new habits in your life in which you are constantly putting yourself in a position to hear the gospel one more time. It means daily spiritual habits, right? It means reading the Bible on your own. It means praying privately, getting into God's presence, not just to ask him for things, but just to enjoy fellowship with Jesus, right? It means listening to sermons, podcasts, reading, but supremely, it means getting to church where Jesus has promised to meet you. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, some of the most famous verses in the Bible, the Great Commission. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Doing what? Baptizing and teaching. And what is that? Sacrament ministry, baptism, and word ministry. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And then what does he say? Behold, I am with you always. Where does Jesus say he'll meet you? I mean, gospel-hungry people, we can't wait to meet with Jesus. Where does he say he's going to meet with us? In the word, in the sacraments, at church, right here this morning. That's number three. They got a new relationship to church. They said, I can't wait to get to church. As I wrap up here, let me just read you something. Uh, that I came across this week that made a big impact on me as I was preparing for this sermon. Okay, this is what it says. It says, we are a people of God, sinners made saints by the gift of grace through Jesus Christ's perfect life, substituting death, and conquering resurrection. We've been talking about all those things this morning. And then it goes on and says, together as the people of God, the church, We walk according to his Holy Spirit through our dependency upon the life-giving means of grace, his word, his sacraments, and prayer. Do you know where that comes from? Do you recognize that? Some of you do. If you go to the All Saints Church website, like I did earlier this week, to check you guys out, it's one of the first things you come to. It's a big heading. It says, who is All Saints Church? All caps. That's what I want to know, right? Just... Give me the quick and dirty on All Saints Church. And that's what it says right there. I mean, it's like it's almost, whoever crafted that, was like, it was like they were looking at Acts chapter 2. All they did, it just lifted it right off the page almost. That's who you are, friends. Now we're about to go to the table. And at the Lord's table, all these things come together in a consummate way. Okay, we experience real fellowship with the risen Jesus. We receive assurance of forgiveness. We have fellowship with one another. All are equal at that table, right? Money and worldly status have no bearing at all. We see the bad news and we see the good news of the gospel preached to our hearts at the very same time. And so brothers and sisters, my friends, new friends, All Saints Church, I'll see you at the table. Let's pray.
Father, we just thank you for this delightful, uh, succinct, and yet pretty comprehensive description of the early church, um, and actually pretty succinct and pretty comprehensive description of what it looks like um, to become a Christian, to be a Christian, dependent on you, dependent on your grace, dependent on your word of the gospel every week, your sacrament which preaches the gospel to us. Father, we thank you um, just again for your word. We thank you for this time to get to worship you. We just pray, Lord, we know you will. We pray your promise that you're going to meet us here at the table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.